Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Driver hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Quantified Health, Wellness and Aging podcast. On today's show we have Gordon Lau. Gordon Lauk is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of Zagreb, director of the National Center of Scientific Excellence in Personalized Healthcare, honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh and the King's College London, and member of the John Hopkins Society of Scholars. In 2017, he initiated the launch of the Human Glycome Project and is one of its two co-directors. His research team is pioneering high-throughput glycomic analysis and application of glycan biomarkers in the field of precision medicine. By combining glycomic data with extensive genetic, epigenetic, biochemical and physiological data in a systems biology approach, they're trying to understand the role of glycans in normal physiology and disease. Professor Lauk co-authored over 200 research articles that are cited over 500 times. He was PI and co-PI in 4NIH, 2FP6, 7FP7, 6H2020 and 3 ESI funds projects and coordinated five of them. In 2007, he founded Genos, a biotech company that is currently the global leader in high-throughput glycomics. Hello and welcome to the show, Gordon. Hi, Lee. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, most, uh, most appreciated. I was surprised that you're over in Zagreb, which is, I would say, about less than 90 minutes away from where I am. Well, Zagreb is a nice location. It has a nice climate, smart people to work in my lab. And I was born in Croatia, so I like it here. Let me tell you what I know of Glycan Age, which is pretty much nothing. I, some time ago, I'll tell you the, the little the backlog Someone contacted me. I think you you might know who he is, American. He was in the kind of age range, 70, 80, like somewhat older. And he pinged me on LinkedIn and said uh, his favorite aging test was glycan age. I never heard of it. I didn't think there was much credibility because I, I get a lot of messages of that nature. And... Then I got connected somehow to uh, Nicolina, uh, on, again on LinkedIn. And then I saw in a news feed later, uh, I believe, uh, funding to Glycan Age. And so it caught my attention. Then I thought, hey, I'll test this out. I believe there's a test kit sitting in my UK home, uh, obviously because of the new imposed corona um, quarantine in the UK, I, maybe a few weeks before I'm able to uh, to do that. So I, I my plan was to perform the test, check it out, read about it, study it, then invite someone on to the podcast. But Nicolina reached out to me, and here we are suddenly. And so I, I jumped in, jump into it um, naive. And so let me begin with what's a con- you and Nicolina share the same surname, I just noticed. So what's the connection there? So Nicolina is my daughter. I got her relatively early. I was less than 25. And uh, she left 
10 years ago, went to London, became a businessman, businesswoman, and she never wanted to actually work with me because she wanted to be independent. It took me 10 years to convince her to start working with the research, what we are doing, because she was doing business in different areas. And I said, you know, you're wasting your time in doing some kind of regular business. Let's try selling signs because what I do, I do good signs, but I'm not a salesperson. I don't know how to sell things. I don't know how to develop business. So now we are working together because first she wanted to be independent. She proved to be independent. And now when she's independent, I think she feels comfortable to work again with me, which makes me very happy. Uh, You must be very proud to be working with her finally. It sounds like it's been an ambition of yours. Yes. You know, she was a businesswoman since kindergarten. In kindergarten, she was selling frogs to the kids in the kindergarten. Then Not she lemonade. Was a businesswoman in high school. So I, I know she can, you know, she can sell refrigerators to Eskimos. So let's see what she will do with the science, what we do, because problem with glycans and not only glycan age, glycans in general, is that people don't know anything about them. And we have seen this, especially in this COVID pandemics, where even the director of NIH was showing the pictures of a spike glycoprotein without a single glycan. And it took a couple of months for majority of scientists to realize that there are actually a lot of glycans in, in the COVID story. And now glycans are becoming more popular because of COVID. But I'm in a field of glycobiology for nearly 30 years. I, I did a lot of research in that field. And glycan age is actually one of the things. And glycan age is the first thing which we actually brought to the market. And I, I think it's a good product because it's it's actually based on a lot of science. So my lab so far analyzed over 150,000 people from different research cohorts. Not all of them for glycan age, but all of them for glycans. And one of the first things we learned by analyzing large cohorts of people, is that glycans change as we get older. But contrary to some other uh, tests of aging, like, for example, Steve Horvath's epigenetic clock, glycan age is not so accurate. So Steve's clock can guess an age plus minus one year in a large cohort. We have a measurement error of approximately nine years. So we are not so good in predicting chronological age. But what we learned in our large cohorts, that actually the interesting thing is the difference between the age we predict through glycans and the chronological age. Because this difference is explained by the healthy or unhealthy lifestyle with the ongoing or even future disease where we see the difference in glycan age now and the disease can happen later. We can go into molecular details if you want or if you just want to stay at this statement. Yeah, sure. I would be interested in uh, the molecular talk. So first of all, I guess to to um, begin that, um, I think you need to introduce what glycans are. I, I was completely unaware of glycans. So to do that, I will go back 
maybe 3 billion years, when we were still all archibacteria. And uh, there was a war between bacteria and viruses, which were trying to eat bacteria or actually multiplying them. And the bacteria were trying to become different, to use some kind of a camouflage to avoid being recognized by a virus. And then they invented glycans. So the life began with the nucleic acids, which then later invented proteins to be more diverse. And then as a third revolution in evolution, the glycans were invented. So actually glycans were invented by archaeobacteria a couple of billion years ago. And, uh, but the real, real kind of blooming of the glycosylation happened when the life became multicellular. So when we stopped being a single cell and became a multicellular organisms, when the, for example, humans have uh, hundreds of thousands of different cell types, they have to differentiate. Our neurons have to talk together. We have to communicate. Our cells have to communicate. And all this requires much more information than what genes and proteins can give us. Because the simplest bacteria, like Escherichia coli, would have a 5,000 genes while humans would have approximately 20,000 genes. And we are not only four times more complicated than bacteria. So what happened with the appearance of multicellular life? Practically all proteins, so all the molecules which do the work in our body, became glycoproteins. So in addition to having 20 amino acids as a building blocks, they got thousands of different glycan blocks which can be added and modified the structure. And instead of being encoded by a single gene, as proteins are, glycans are encoded by interaction of hundreds of genes, their sequence, their epigenetic regulation, and the environmental impacts. So what we have actually with glycans is another layer of complexity which enabled life to become multicellular. And now the question, why is nobody talking about it? And the reason is that these structures are chemically very complicated. And although early in the last century, carbohydrates or glycans and nucleic acids and proteins were similarly studied, at the middle of the 20th century, technology developed to analyze genetic information and then most of the science focused on genes. So most of science was looking at genetic information, later also epigenetic information, a little bit of protomics, but this is all linear information. It's a sequence which you can just write down as a sequence of letters. While glycans are chemically complicated, you need sophisticated machines to analyze them, which, is, which makes this study difficult. This is why the field of glycobiology is lagging at least a couple of decades behind the field of genetics. But in the last decade, we see a revolution in glycobiology. We see technologies which enabled detailed analysis of glycans. Actually, a couple of days ago, there was a science paper showing a um, um, photography of a single glycan. So under microscope, you can see a single glycan structure now. And we also develop technologies which enable analysis of a huge uh, cohorts of people, thousands of people. And then in the last decade, we became learning, we started to learn a lot about glycans. And this is 
why we have these new discoveries. And actually, the first discovery which is on the market is the glycan H. There is also a second now, which was established, uh, introduced by a UK company called Helena Biosciences, which is the glycoliver test, which is a glycan test for liver disease. But it, it's a kind of a different product. Okay, so first questions first. Apart from the company you mentioned, are there other uh, consumer-focused companies in the field of glycans? Uh, and to consumer, no. So actually, even the number of companies in the field of glycobiology is relatively limited, maybe less than 100 globally. And they mostly uh, work with the pharmaceutical industry. They help big companies develop new glycoprotein drugs because most of the novel so-called smart drugs or wonder drugs are actually glycoproteins. So small companies help the big pharma develop this. And this would be the first, uh, Glycan Age is the first company which is trying to sell something based on glycans direct to consumer. Okay, and what's the structure of Glycan Age, the company? Where is it based? Is it privately held? Glycan Age. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw uh, investment, and that's what flagged it to me. So it's a private company. We took one investment, small one, not large, and it's a London-based company. Though the the the, the laboratory and the research part is based in Zagreb which is actually another company called Ganos, which is doing all this glycan-related research. So the Ganos, which is my primary company, is a 50-plus researchers company. We are on the market for 13 years, and we mostly collaborate with research institutions all around the world. For example, we are currently studying a couple of thousand of patients with, um, with uh, incident cardiovascular diseases, which we got from Harvard. Actually, we just got one cohort of COVID patients from Bergamo and so on. So we do a lot of research on glycans in my company in Zagreb. And maybe a decade ago, we discovered this link between glycans and aging, which was developed into the product Glycan Age, which is then licensed to this Glycan Age company, which is now marketing the product. Okay, so this Genos is R and D, and you're you're taking a a B to C route uh, in terms of biological aging via glycanage.com. And do you have other plans to take a B to C route, or are you solely focused on glycanage? It's a difficult question. So the actually even glycanage is not only B to C. Because I think the B2B is equally important because there are many companies globally which are offering anti-aging uh, uh, treatments, which are offering different lifestyle interventions where uh, glycan age could actually help to quantify how well does each of these interventions work for a specific individual. Because I think one of the biggest problems in everything what we are doing, starting from diet, exercise, to all those biohacking things, is that people are different. So not the same. There is no a single approach which would work for everybody. And we don't have tools to quantify what actually works. And we hope that this glycan age could actually help those companies 
see which kind of intervention works for a specific person. So I see also the B2C and B2B branch of glycanage. We also have a number of other products in, in the pipeline, but these are more um, diagnostic products, which will have to go through the different route because uh, it requires uh, a regulatory approval. And it is not easy for glycans to be approved as uh, diagnostic biomarkers because technology to measure glycans is not available in the routine laboratories. So this will be a longer path. And this kind of um, uh, non-regulated uh, lifestyle test like a li- glycan age, which we got opinion from the European Medical Agency that this is not a diagnostic test, is a kind of easy way to the market. Okay, that's uh, quite clear, and I appreciate that. Uh, You were quite succinct. So let me jump back to something that you said earlier and just check that I understood it correctly. It it appeared you were saying that the Horvath clock is plus or minus one year, uh, uh, whereas the glycan age gave you your age within nine years. Did I understand correctly? So this is the average. So when you take a thousand people and you look for the median difference between age and, and glycan age or age and epigenetic age, this is what you get in a large cohort. For a given individual, the number can be larger, but median, these would be the difference, yes. As we spoke, I just did a Google search and it said a glycan age, and this is on your LinkedIn, the best biomarker of biological age. Mm-hmm. It's the best marker of biological age, but it's the least accurate. No, no, no. It's uh, less accurate in predicting chronological age. So if you are 40. Oh, okay. That's quite smart. Can you expand upon that so we can be sure everyone gets it? Okay. So your chronological age is the number of times the Earth went around the sun since you were born. This is how we measure calendar. And some tests, like the Steve Horvath's epigenetic clock, was developed to predict this age. So what Steve did, he measured 300,000 epigenetic marks in thousands of people, and then used computer modeling to select 353, I think, to predict the chronological age. And this is actually so accurate that it is um, not really useful because, you know, if you tell me how all, how, what is my chronological age, I know that. So, for example, this test is now being used by the German police to identify age of illegal immigrants. So somebody comes in and says, I'm, you know, I'm 16 I'm minor, you have to let me in the country. They do the test and say, no, you're 25, go out. But uh, for um, any kind of um, medical application, this is too accurate. And for example, what Steve did, he developed something called the Grimm methylation clock, Grimm age, Grimm epigenetic age, which is based on some other things, not just the chronological age. So this was based on smoking and some protein markers. And I've seen a couple of weeks ago, there was another epigenetic clock, which was also predicting different outcomes, not just chronological age. So uh, for glycan age, the fact that we are not accurate in predicting the chronological age 
tells us that there is something more than chronological age which affects the glycans. And what we know from our research, and it's, it's thousands and thousands, I think it's over 8,000 people at the moment that we analyzed, we know that this difference is explained by um, different elements of unhealthy lifestyle and diseases which are going on. So the fact that, for example, somebody is 10 years younger or older has a biological message. And this is what makes glycan age the best biological test, because when you get this information, this information has some kind of significance for your health. Yeah, it sounds awesome, and I'm really quite surprised. As I said, I ignored those signals coming into me to begin with about the glycan age test, uh, because I thought, hey, look, if this was significant, I would have known about it. So now I've got as far as talking with yourself, and now I've just heard that, now you most certainly have my interest. Uh, so now I wish I knew one hell of a lot more. Question that comes up now then, or a uh, proposal is, this must be therefore a great uh, measurement of what I'll call true health. Well, this, Correct? This is definitely one component of true health. So we cannot claim there is one universal health versus disease. You know, you can be perfectly healthy metabolically, but you could have, a, I don't know, a cancer which will kill you, or you can have a COVID which would kill you despite the fact that you are healthy otherwise. So, but one aspect, and what I think that what this test is actually measuring is a low-grade chronic inflammation. And we are doing huge amount of research, exactly because of what you said, you never heard about it, but you have heard about dozens of different uh, biological age tests. You can go on internet. Absolutely, and, and I had uh, another epigenetic age test company planned before even considering looking myself even towards glycan age. It was only because of uh, your daughter that I jumped the queue uh, with yourself, and I'm, I'm becoming glad I did. So epigenetic age is something which is extremely interesting. We are also working a lot on epigenetics because what we think is that there is epigenetic information behind glycan age also. So something which is changed in epigenetics is then translated into the different glycan age. One thing which is important to distinguish here is that epigenetics is information. It's something like an instruction book, what to do, how to do, when to do. Similar like genetics. So genetic is a kind of a hardwired information. Epigenetics is more soft. You can change it during your lifetime. While proteins and glycans, they're effectors. They do the work. So the problem with epigenetics today is that we still don't really know how to interpret it. So we measure 600,000 epigenetic letters or marks. And this is only for methylation. There are other layers of epigenetics. And uh, can you repeat how many? So uh, there, are, there are billions. But what we measure is usually 600,000. This is the, the current technology, the epic array and some other arrays which analyze methylation. They usually currently analyze 600,000. For, for scientific projects. I'm, I don't know what the, the companies who sell these tests actually measure. 
So uh, if we do a research project, and we did a lot of research projects with people doing epigenetics, is they measure 600,000 data points. And then out of these 600,000, you have to understand which are important. And uh, this is not easy. So there is a huge genetic um, statistics and genetic epidemiology science behind it. And then you find, for example, what uh, Steve Horvath did. He found sites which predict chronological age, which is extremely cool. You know, you can take a drop of blood and say it comes from a 57-year-old male or whatever. But to understand what are the, the, the consequences of something, you have to look, for example, I don't know, people who got a heart attack and people who didn't got a heart attack and look what is the difference in methylation. And then you say, okay, these marks maybe predict heart attack. And then you do it for diabetes, you do it for other diseases. And there is a huge amount of research going on at the moment. This is extremely interesting. And uh, the problem I see as, as a kind of a trying to use it as a commercial product is that once you have a commercial product on a market, you actually have to do all this research for your product. Because if you use the word epigenetics, this is not the same like uh, Steve's clock, uh, Grim clock, some other clock. You know, epigenetic is a very wide word. So anybody putting a test on a market will have to show what is this test actually measuring. And, and this is a great challenge for all those companies. So the way we went forward is that we were first pushing on science. And as I said, I'm a primarily scientist. I'm a professor at university. I have my private research institute. And we analyze many, many, many people. And I always want to analyze more people. We do something like 30,000 people a year now. And we try to see what actually happens when people have different glycans. For example, one question we have in the lab now is, we have a cohort of 1,000 people. They were on four different diets for a year. We have a sample before and some sample later. And we would like to see what happens with their glycans, depending on the diet. So will high-carb diet change glycans in one way compared to the low-carb diet? It's still a question, but it's in the and lab at the moment. You think it's sensitive to pick that up? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, but the problem is, you know, um, different diet will have a different effect on the different people. For example, we did recently, we are just about to publish that, we did the bariatric surgery. This is a surgery when your stomach is reduced, so people usually lose weight after that. And uh, we had some people losing 30 glycan years in six months after that test, while some lost only maybe two. So people respond differently. We had people on different anti-inflammatory drugs like infliximab, which is used in um, IBD and some other diseases. Some people react strongly. Some people don't. We had people exercising. We have several cohorts of people exercising. Some people, when they start exercising, their glycan age gets better. In other people, it gets worse because their inflammation increases. So people are different. There is no standard human. And uh, we still have to learn a lot. You know, we, our knowledge is still just a minor component compared to our lack of knowledge, what we don't know.
I appreciate that. Um, so when you're, there's just so many questions, <laughs> questions here. Uh, I'll try and just keep to keep to the, the core one. So I don't keep you for two days. So as soon as you say inflammation, I instantly start thinking of CRP, interleukin-6, and so fibrogen and so on. And so I'm a little confused as to what, what, what you're measuring, that these are not measuring when you say the word inflammation, standard blood chemistry test. Yeah. So, you, you have to comp- so we are comparing all these components. So when you look, for example, at CRP, there are two different CRPs on the market. One is a standard and the other one is high sensitivity CRP. The standard one is something which changes extremely quickly with infection. You have a bacterial infection, CRP will go 20, 100, 200 fold. CRP is measuring acute inflammation. So it's not really informative in long term. High sensitivity CRP, which is kind of a basal levels of CRP, when you don't have information, don't have inflammation, is a little bit more informative, but it is still a more um, kind of um, what is going on at the moment. While glycans, IgG glycans, which are part of uh, glycan age, give you kind of a cumulative information of what was going on in you in the last couple of years at least. So it's a kind of... Um, it's a benchmark where you are and which does not change very quickly. You know, it takes weeks, even months to change your glycan age, whatever you do. IL-6 is very interesting. IL-6, for example, is, on a, is one of the molecules which regulate IgG glycosylation. So, uh, you know, there are many components. And the key question is, if you measure something... How well will this predict what will happen in the future? And what we know now, based on our research, for example, that one of the IgG glycans is the best predictor of future uh, heart attack or stroke. We published it earlier this year on a huge cohort, 27,000 people from Germany. This is something we are now trying to replicate with the Harvard cohort. We know, for example, if your glycans change now, you are at much higher risk to develop some kind of inflammatory disease like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, uh, IBD. These are the. What do you mean if they change now? If so, if your glycans are altered now, meaning if they are different from their what? If you have a bad Ig glycom, you have a bad glycan age. So bad glycan age oh, okay. is the risk factor for many different diseases. What we know, for example, if you lose weight, most of the people your glycan age becomes better. If you uh, do a moderate exercise, not too much, uh, your glycan age also improves. If you do bariatric surgery, and something we haven't published yet, we are going to publish it very soon, is, for example, that um, in women, estrogen is very important. So if you lose estrogen, your glycan age goes up, which we also see in a perimenopausal woman. So we are trying to accumulate a lot of science which will... Uh, make people confident that by measuring this glycan age, you get information which is valuable. Because I think there is one key problem, and it's a psychological problem. So we all know that if we live a healthy life, 
we will live longer and we will develop diseases later. So there was a huge study which says if you avoid four major risk factors, you will live 10 years longer and you will be healthy these 10 years. So we know we can actually save 10 years of healthy life by living healthy, but people don't do it. Maybe even 15. Probably. 10 is an average. Maybe even more. Yeah. But people don't do it. And people don't do it because, you know, getting a reward in 20 or 30 years for an effort which you do today is not the way our brain works. Yeah, cognitive bias. Yeah. we, We can always say, you know, I'll start next week. I'll start in a year. I'm still young. I don't have to worry about it. But... If you think even about the smartwatches, you know, I have a smartwatch which tells me every hour now you have to stand up and walk for two minutes. Easy. Because we know this is a healthy thing, so I programmed my watch in that way. And he's giving me some kind of um, stars if I do it and if I don't do it. And just this simple feedback saying you have a two weeks of perfect track record. Don't, don't destroy your track record by not standing up. Actually helped me do it. So we need feedback. And what I think the glycan age can provide compared to genetic information, even epigenetic information at the moment, it can give us feedback whether what we are doing is making a difference. So I know for myself, so my primary problem for my glycan age is that I have few kilos too many. Not, not horribly, but I have few kilos too many. And when I lose them, my glycan age starts going down. And if I get them back, it goes back again. So I see that by, you know, eating, I'm hurting my glycan age. And I know, because I do research in this field, that these glycans, which are old glycans, are actually doing damage to my body. Because uh, old glycans do not have the capacity to suppress inflammation. So when we are young... Our glycans are suppressing inflammation, and this is saving huge amount of energy. Because if we go back, what is inflammation? Inflammation is a response when there is usually there is a bacterial infection or there is some kind of a damage to the tissue, and then we send our foot soldiers, which are neutrophils, and they go there and kill everything. And then you rebuild that part of the body. So it's a kind of a, you know panic response. There is an attack, go there and kill everybody. This is what neutrophils do. And uh, then you repair that part. But this is very expensive. First, you you lose your neutrophils, you kill your own tissue, you have to rebuild it. It uses a huge amount of energy. And the the process called the low-grade chronic inflammation means that, that everywhere in the body there are small inflammatory processes. And this is increasing with aging. If we can suppress this low-grade chronic inflammation, and this is something what immunoglobulins do, we get a huge amount of energy which we can spend somewhere else. And for example, it is known, and I even have some colleagues who do it, there is something called IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, where people get immunoglobulins from other people, which are usually young, injected in their bloodstream, And this suppresses inflammation. It's used in some diseases, but also makes people feel much better. Where can you get this therapy done? You can get it in any hospital, but it has to be 
uh, you know, there are some indications for which you can get this therapy. So it's not like uh, stem cells where you, you can go into Kiev, Ukraine and... Well, I'm sure that there are some clinics where you can go and get it. I know in U.S. there are many different so-called plasma therapy, plasma fractionation. I, I'm not really following that market. I know some of my friends who are physicians, they give it to themselves. Probably not fully oh, legal, okay, but they prescribe it. I just, okay, I just wondered if this was something we can do on a Saturday night in Zagreb. So the problem is, you know, it, it, you have to get, you know, a couple of hundreds of grams of this immunoglobulins. So it's interven it's it, you have to get this uh, intravenous infusion and it takes hours. But I don't know. I guess maybe there are some clinics doing it. I never really uh, explored it because it's a legal drug. You can get it. You just have to get the physicians who will prescribe it to you. Okay. So there there is so much again there you've said uh, so you're indicating that it's what I would term at least very dynamic compared to other types of tests, dynamic in responding to lifestyle and environmental change. You would agree that it's very dynamic? So compared to, uh, for example, epigenetic test, yes, but compared to CRP, no. So these uh, routine biochemical tests can be way more dynamic than glycan age. Glycan age is changing much slower. Let me ask you something that is related, but maybe a tangent. When it comes to CRP, it appears to me, this this is just logic, that everybody should measure HSCRP, say every quarter, because if you begin on a disease trajectory you will see that rise. So, for example, I normally have HSCRP 0.4. If I take certain types of liposomal um, curcumin, it's 0.3. But if I was to see it go above 1, and I know I've not had an infection, certainly if if it hits, say, 1.5, which many people have, uh, I would begin saying, hey, something untoward may be taking place in my body. Don't you think that's a super cheap predictive marker that something potentially harmful is taking place instead of just an H, uh, the standard HR, uh, CRP test? Like, why isn't everybody not doing a super cheap HSCRP uh, every quarter? So I, I don't have the answer to that. So I agree completely with you. If this would work... This will be a fantastic thing because it's very cheap and it's easy to do. We did uh, several cohorts of people, and this was together with uh, Oxford University, where we were comparing high-sensitivity CRP to glycans as a predictor of future diabetes development. And the glycans were way more informative. Uh, Nobody... You know, many people are analyzing the CRP and there are still no papers which are convincingly showing that this measure is actually useful in predicting outcomes. Uh, What is the reason for that? I don't know. Maybe there is too much influence of some kind of um, small inflammations which you might not be aware of, like, uh, you know, small cuts or some kind of... uh, uh, dental problems or anything else which would raise CRP and then 
you would lose this um, baseline level, which is idea behind the high uh, sensitivity CRP. I don't know. It would be great if this would work, uh, but nobody showed yet that this works. So one of the kind of dream I have is that one day this uh, glycan age or IgG glycom would be a routine test like um, HbA1c or CRP, and it will be done to everybody once, twice a year because we know this is informative. The key problem here is, is that these glycan-based tests are done on machines which are not available in routine laboratories. And this is what makes this um, real uh, widespread use difficult. And this is what makes tests relatively expensive. This is not a cheap test. So, um, but one day when more information accumulate, maybe when we analyze 500,000, not 150,000 people, or maybe a million people, this will become more widespreadly used. And then, you know, because the reason that something is not cheap at the moment does not mean it is not good. It is not cheap at the moment because they're not, there's no volume in tests which would make them cheap. So my approach would be, let's make a glycan test cheap, and then we will have something which we know it works, which everybody could do regularly. Do you, I've got a couple of questions here. Do you see competition in this space? Uh, there is competition. So as pe- more people are becoming aware that glycans are important, there are more and more companies which see this as their opportunity. So the way I uh, deal with competition, with my main company, Ganos, which is the glycan analysis lab, we try to be better, faster, and cheaper than anybody else, which we are at the moment. So at the moment, we are not really threatened by the competition. For the glycan age, uh, we do have patent, which is protecting the use of glycans for prediction of uh, biological age. So there is some kind of protection which is stopping the the competition coming into the market. But I think the, the biggest, the biggest uh, kind of advantage we have is that we are really the fastest and the cheapest and the most accurate lab to measure glycans globally. And what about in terms of data acquisition? You've mentioned so many cohort, cohorts that it sounds as if you may also have acquired a significant amount of data that uh, acts as a barrier to entry. Of course, yeah. So we have we have glycoms for 150,000 people. So I think that the, the second biggest lab in the world would have something like 10,000 people. And, and there, oh, please. And, and we are accumulating more data faster than anybody else. So yes, this is a huge barrier for anybody willing to compete with us. Okay, so you're on a, a nice potential scale trajectory. You mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned dentistry. And so I saw my CR- HSCRP go to 0.8. And I know that's still considered very low, but for me, it's high. And so I actually went to the dentist, asked for an x-ray, and there was a pocket of inflammation in the gums. I was completely unaware. I had a minor operation. You know, a scalpel was taken, uh, it was removed, and yeah, Within weeks, it was back to 0.4. Yes. So it's it's exactly what you were saying and what I was saying. This is valuable information, but this um, 
high sensitive CRP would react to this small pocket of inflammation, which is not a major health issue. While the glycanage is a kind of uh, cumulative of many such things. For example, if you would have extensive uh, inflammation because of kind of serious dental problems, within a couple of months or years, your glycanage would go up. So it's, uh, you could say that the kind of um, CRP could be maybe a more acute thing, you know, what is currently going on, while the glycans on IgG and the glycanage is a kind of a cumulative, slowly moving uh, measure, which tells you what is your kind of a long-term state. Yeah, we did one interesting experiment. Maybe this would relate nice to this. So um, I went to all my friends globally and asked them to send me a couple of hundred samples of uh, plasma from people of all ages from their region. And I collected 27 different populations from all around the world. And we learned that IgG glycans correlate extremely well with expected longevity. So, for example, on Papua New Guinea, where when this was collected, the expected lifespan was below 50 years. Glycans went quickly into the old age. The similar thing was in Uganda. Well, for example, UK and Germany, the glycans would take maybe two decades more to come to these old glycans than, and then in some kind of uh, countries where people have a lower expected lifespan. So it's kind of... Glycans kind of tell you how much of your healthy life you already consumed, which is a bit scary, but the good thing is you can change them. So it's it's a good information to know. That was actually the very question I was going to ask was, hey, we could project lifespan I, in, into buckets of you're going to have a long life, a short life, or a medium life. And when I look at we haven't sure, done enough we haven't done enough research to be confident to saying that. So we did this one study and we are doing more studies. We are looking into mortality cohorts, so samples collected before people die and then tracking how long it took until they die. But in principle, yes, it's not zero one. You cannot, you know, put a timer and say you have five years, twenty twenty years, fifteen years. But it definitely puts you in high-risk or low-risk category, depending on your glycans. Yep. But it sounds like you can stratify people into having a long life or a short life. Of having a higher probability of shorter or longer life, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, probability. So you can stratify people into high likelihood of a short life and high likelihood of a, a long life. Uh, yes, but there, there, there are tricks. For example, we are currently doing a study with a clinic in New York. So we just tested one guy. He happens to own that clinic. And he was, I think, 38 years younger. And I said, wow, what the hell are you doing? How did you do it? And he's on a billion of different supplements. Unbelievable. And I said, okay, I'm not going to try all these 50 things you are taking. But can we do a research project? Can we do more of your patients? 
to see what actually works. And this is something we are doing in a moment. We are collecting his clients and we just bumped into another guy who is 40 years younger. So you can actually do some kind of a biohacking magic and, and then move yourself from high risk to low risk. We still don't know exactly what works, but we have a way of testing what works. So this is what we are doing in a moment, trying which kind of those uh, biohacking things actually work. I've been playing with anti-aging molecular uh, agents uh, well, for over a year, I've spent quite a, a sum on them, like more than mortgage type money. And so, yeah, it would be, I, I would love to see uh, some kind of feedback, you know, is nicotinamide, riboside having an effect, um, etc. So and we are currently doing a lot of research in that field. That's extremely interesting because, you know, uh, the... What the glycan age at the moment is giving you is just an information. It's not a solution. It can just tell you, you have a problem, you don't have a problem, what you are doing is working, you're not doing is not working. But if we could actually know what really works, and for now, the thing we know that really works is losing weight and taking estrogen, and also taking infliximab, but this is not something you want to do. And now we are testing, for example, with David Sinclair, we just got something like 600 mice he was feeding with all different magic things. So I'm really anxious to see how will this work out. And we are getting these people from US who are taking different type of supplements. And the problem is that to really have an answer to a question, you have to take a sample before somebody takes, start taking something, and then after maybe six months, a year, and so on. So this is really demanding uh, setting of an experiment, but we are really trying hard to collect this information. Do you, do there's a few more questions there? So, do you are you aware of environmental pollution? Its effects on people like heavy metals, from dental amalgams, or uh, uh, from herbicides. Uh, so. Uh, we, we did a little bit of research. We did something with um, herbicides. We did something with environment. We haven't really seen much, but I must admit it's, the problem is that it's very difficult to separate uh, multiple factors which act together. You know, living, for example, what we saw in one study with, with, with the mothers and newborns that actually babies who lived in a rural environment were worse than the babies in an urban environment, which is crazy. You know, we all think, you know, village is a healthy place, but apparently you get so much exposure to different uh, herbicides, pesticides in a village, which is much more than in a city at the moment. So, you know, we need a lot, a lot of research to really know what works and what does not work. So it's very hard to know without doing research. Yeah, it would be interesting to know what the likes of glyphosate are actually doing. And again, I, I, I don't know if you caught it at the start, but I should have a test kit waiting for me in the UK. I'll send my blood back, and I, I want to stress this test kit I uh, was independent of this podcast. This this came up completely uh, separately. I normally check things out first before um, inviting people. So 
I'll send a blog back when I get an opportunity. And But from then on, you have my plasma. You have uh, my data derived from that plasma. And it, if it appears you'll give me information back, what you're calling a biological age, which seems more of a health score than what we've... Well, actually, you've got a different interpretation of biological age by completely yet, and I do understand your notion that it's actually more valuable. And so are you just giving me a one-time result, or are you going to give me something over time more? Because you do have that data there, and you may be able to reinterpret it better as time moves on and so forth. So the way glycanage works at the moment is that we sell subscription where you will get multiple tests and then you will be getting comparison between the time points and we don't just give one number we also give three important components of the glycan age so we actually give four numbers and then you can track these four numbers how do they change with time we don't have, so the glycan age is on the market for a very short time. So we don't have many people with the multiple time points. But yes, we have some people who have been tracked. I was tracked for five years. So uh, we see that different components change in a little bit different way depending on what we do. It's not easy to interpret because, you know, it's a cumulative damage over a couple of months and you don't know exactly what was happening in the last couple of months. But it's definitely giving people a valuable feedback, and that's the idea. So ideally, what we would be doing is you decide to try, I don't know, NAD or NMN or whatever you are taking, and then you do a test before, you do a test three or six months later, and then say, okay, this is not working for me. Let's try resveratrol. And then you take resveratrol, and then after six months, you say, wow, this is working wonders for me or you lose weight, gain weight, whatever. Okay, so as I as I mentioned uh, during a previous guest, uh, Tom Stubbs of uh, Chronomics, so once you get enough accuracy in there, you can start enabling markets. You know, you can be the middle person who's quantifying uh, which interventions take uh, have which degree of success. And so you're lub- you're lubricating a market. Actually, you're bringing a market into existence because you're taking products and you're facilitating a meaningful exchange with with buyers. Ah, that's a tough question. Actually, this is one of the routes we actually first tried. The problem is the majority of companies selling different type of interventions. They actually know they don't work in all people, and some of them don't even work in most of the people. So they don't want to be quantified. So the the incentive for evaluating the intervention will never come from a company selling the intervention. It will come from a buyer. So what we are actually trying to do is to give power to the buyer to see whether something he or she is buying actually works. Because it's like, you know, if you go and buy used car, the salesman will say, oh, this is a fantastic, perfect conditioned car where there's nothing wrong with it. Nobody will give you objective evaluation of what they are selling. So it's, um, it's a difficult thing. 
I had the same problem when we were trying to sell food traceability to confirm that a specific piece of meat comes from a specific farm. We were doing this with genetic tracking in my lab. And actually, nobody wanted that because, you know, it's not to their benefit. It's a benefit to, of the end consumer who is not paying. So it's uh, difficult. Obviously, they could stick a label on whatever they're selling saying verified or certified. I know, but they can do it without doing a test. So you have a lot of companies selling the labels. This is guaranteed domestic, guaranteed ecological, so on. And it's um, not always so. Okay, I better move on because I, I would love more time with you. Um, so, okay, personal question. Alcohol. Have you noticed any connections with alcohol? And yes, I mentioned because I do have a, a, a particular passion for wine. So um, we don't see a strong relation. I have a Good friend answer. of mine who is doing research on wine, and he claims there should be a beneficial link that drinking wine is healthy. And, you know, most of Europe thinks drinking wine is healthy. So uh, we didn't see much benefit from drinking wine, but we also didn't see any damage from drinking a reasonable amount of wine. So, you know, if you are drinking too much, you'll always, you know, your, your liver, if you kill your liver, then you will see effect. But if um, moderate consumption of wine is definitely not doing any damage. That's good to know. Uh, uh, there's a couple wines in Slovenia, the red wines that um, locals claim um, enhances your longevity. So um, I've been uh, drinking them, uh, believing that it's a, it's a supplement. I agree. Good red wine will definitely increase your lifespan. Now, you mentioned four numbers. What are those four numbers? So one is the glycan age. So it's a number of ages based on glycans. And there are three components called uh, G0, G2, and S, which are names for different parts of the glycans we measure. So G0 means zero galactoses. There are no galactoses there. G2 means two galactoses. S means salic acid. And these are three chemical structures which have a specific molecular functions. So we know, for example that if there is no galactose, this immunoglobulin will activate complement and act through the lectin pathway. So it's kind of promoting inflammation. While when you put galactose on sialic acid, it's actually suppressing inflammation based on different molecular pathways. So it's, it's not, not that this is fully understood, but we kind of know. No galactose means more inflammation. Adding galactose, adding sialic acid means less inflammation. But we separate these three components because they do not respond equally to different lifestyle therapies and, and also in different people. So some people, this G2 will change more. In some people, S will change more. And the glycan age is then the composite index of these three. So um, actually, the only thing, well, the reason why we made glycan age is to simplify the IgG glycosylation analysis because for science we actually measure 70 components from the IgG glycome but you cannot give people 70 variables and then start thinking which goes up and which goes down so we kind of derived those 70 into four 
interaction into three and this three into one. So people can either take a simple thing like a number or they can look at these three. And actually, Glycanage also gives an opportunity to download the raw data so you can see all glycans, how they look like. You offer a consumer download, data download. Yes. And actually, even in the report, we give the, the, the image of the entire glycome. So you can actually see it directly in the report, or you can download your data. And the idea is also that some of the claims which we cannot legally make, because we don't have approval from the, from the European Medicinal Agency or FDA, maybe some third-party vendors could make a health benefit claims. Like, you know, for 23andMe, when they were not allowed to give any uh, medical interpretation, there were third-party websites where you can actually download information and get it all back. Yeah, it's I, one of I, the options we are thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, pay the $99 for the basic ancestry test and then pay $10 elsewhere to get juicy health information. Something like that, yeah. So I just went to glycanage.com now, and uh, I, I want to double-check because you'd said it was a subscription. I remember I, when I looked at it, it was not. And so it still doesn't look like a subscription. Uh, there's a yearly test, but and if you pay monthly, it would end up working out so, costing more over uh, the year. You take a subscription, which is which includes one test. But then when you have a subscription we offer people additional tests for, for a long Oh, it's time. not mentioned on the website, just so you know. Yeah, I know. So we sell, we sell a yearly test because, you know, people can get one test a year when they take subscription. But then we also offer a benefit of having more than one per year. You can have two per year, four per year, depending. Oh, so, if, so that means if I buy one test, my subsequent test won't be any cheaper. If you take subscription... Your one test per year is covered with a subscription. But you will also get an offer from us to do additional tests maybe in six months, which would be cheaper. If I don't take those offers, yeah. I'll simply get billed the same every yeah. single year. Yeah, and you get one test per year. Yeah. Hmm. It's a little bit unclear, just so you know. It might be more of an incentive that the, the second test is a little bit cheaper. As I said, I'm a scientist. I'm not good in business development. So okay, yes, and I, I will convey I will convey your message to to the to the business part of the company. Yeah. Okay, and when is there any chance of a discount code for listeners being generated? Uh, and I'll put the, it in the show notes. This can be done. We can arrange a discount code. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes for um, anyone listening. And so, um, let me jump back. When it came to the so one I had, idea could be, you know, we can say a discount code, but they have to listen to the whole <laughs> podcast. So maybe we can make a yeah. You you say the secret word, we'll make that word into a code. Okay, we'll make the secret word right at the end of this. Okay. Okay. And, and so jumping back, I uh, you know I, I looked at telomeres. I I was concerned I may have some significantly short ones. I don't mean the average. I wasn't concerned about the average. I figured it would be okay. Um, but I was concerned I may have a number of critically short telomeres. So I went and measured um, in with uh, life length in Madrid, Spain. And yes, I did. And so I, I'm always looking for my weakest link because that's what will take me out. 
So I figured having um, some critically short telomeres uh, nowadays is probably one of my highest risk factors of um, uh, mortality, morbidity. And so then I started taking TA65, and I retested a year later, and I rolled back my biological age, measured via telomere length, by 18 months. So although I aged 12 months, during that time I went backwards by 18 months. And so do you? Ha I, I consider telomeres very important. Can you say anything about the relation between telomeres and glycans? Okay, I have problems with telomeres. So telomeres are a protective mechanism, how we are preventing our cells to convert into a tumor cell. So telomeres are kind of a timer which allow a cell to have a specific number of divisions before the, they wear out and the cell cannot divide anymore. So the stem cells would have the ability that is telomerase activity, so they can extend the telomeres, so they can divide forever, while the differentiated cells are losing this ability and they, the telomeres are shortening and eventually the cell has to die. But the problem is that it is very difficult to translate the telomere length in a subset of cells which you measure on the whole organism. So there were decades of uh, research in telomeres, and I think the kind of um, final conclusion paper was on a couple of hundred thousand people, which more or less said that any change in a telomere length is not associated with any health outcome or risk. So whether your telomeres are getting shorter or longer, it doesn't really change your risk of anything. I can send you a paper if you want. It's it's a huge paper, hundreds of thousands of people. And actually sure, we'll link to it in the show notes. Sorry? We'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. And I'll get the, it from you. the other problem is if you have genetically longer telomeres, it's actually risk to get a cancer. Because the telomeres is the safety uh, measure, safety tool against cell living forever. Because cell living forever is a cancer if it divides uncontrollably. So I think I've heard, I have heard these arguments, but the last um, guest on the show, Liz Parrish, I think you'll be aware she did a, a gene therapy on herself uh, to uh, to lengthen her telomere length. And uh, you know, obviously, the question was raised: Hey, will will this increase likelihood of cancer? And I, I followed it for quite a while and concluded, no, it, it was more the opposite. But I'm uh, totally open and would love to know more and keep so, discussing. So I, I, I'm not in the telomere field. I was just following this as a kind of, uh, I'm a professor at the university, so I have to explain some things to the students. And I kind of stopped when this huge study completed that the change of telomere length does not predict anything. And I think the key problem is when you do a telomere length on a person is that you're looking at telomeres in your blood cells. And the, the composition of cells in your blood depends on what is actually happening at the moment. So if there's some kind of uh, inflammation, then they, they divide more 
and actually the those the stem cells which which are kind of um, behind all those cells they're not in the blood they are in the bone marrow so you are kind of um, by measuring telomeres you are giving a snapshot of the cells which currently circulate in your blood and even well if you look into the the large projects of aging I think they all gave up on telomeres, and now all the research of biomarkers is focusing either on uh, proteomics or epigenetics or on glycans. And these are the three key components which are currently being used. I think telomeres are kind of out of the game. And what I'll do is I'll invite, uh, I think the CEO of lifelent.com is uh, Steve Matlin, if I remember correctly. I'll invite him as a guest. We'll see what he has to say. So, did you say that you're working with David Sinclair? Yes, we collaborate by uh, we do the glycan analysis on some of the intervention studies he do, does. So, and we published, I think, one or two papers together. Yep. And in terms of lifestyle, I raised alcohol, heavy metals, this type of stuff. I personally am of the belief, and I stress belief. The fasting is the greatest intervention that the majority of people can do for health. Have you saw any information, data on, on the effects of fasting and glycans? So I fully agree. I think that this, um, so what we know is that the microbiome affects the glycans. And we did one study where there was a fecal microbiome transplant and if you get this healthy microbiome, your glycome also becomes better. And the other end of the spectrum is that glycans determine the microbiome. Because uh, the problem in modern society is that we eat too much and too often. And when we eat too often, our guts are always full of food. And this is like leaving a soup on a kitchen counter overnight. What happens, bacteria grow there. And the same thing is happening in our guts. So if the food is always there, then any aggressive bacteria, which is fast in consuming this food, will multiply. But if we empty our guts, so if we fast for at least, I don't know, 12, 18 hours a day, or maybe for a longer time occasionally, then uh, our, full, our guts are empty and only bacteria which can graze on the glycans or our endothelium survive. So fasting gives us a chance to select which bacteria we want to have in our microbiome. And this is a basic evolutionary mechanism. So, uh, you know, until 100 years ago, nobody had a problem of too much food. So we were simply not equipped to cope with bacteria which grow in all this excess food. So I think fasting is something which is essential for keeping the healthy microbiome, which then reflects also on a healthier glycome. So I agree completely. That was super interesting. And there was a lot I would have loved to have broken apart in there, but I'll have to leave for now. But you, you were saying that the microbiome affects the glycans, but you were also saying the glycans affect the microbiome. Yes. Is it two-way? Yes. So, well, we have to separate the word glycans from the word glycan H test. So glycan H test is just one component of the glycome. 
So our guts are covered with glycans. These are different glycans. Glycan age is based on IgG glycans. These are surface mucins where they're actually the way we feed bacteria we like. We give them the, these uh, sugars, which we produce and feed the bacteria we like. And then these bacteria make vitamins on whatever we need and also fight the, the bad bacteria. And in the same time, by having the healthy microbiome, this is reducing the inflammation, which then is also reflected in a healthier glycome. I suppose you've heard of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. No, sorry. Okay, um, I'll link you to it. This was something brought by a previous guest, and I suspect some kind of link there, again, with glycons. So I'll put in the show notes, I'll also um, ping you an email. When it comes to insulin and glucose, those appear to me to be... Uh, I would say the primary driver of aging and chronic disease. And so do you see um, a connection between insulin and or stroke glucose and, um, again, glycons? So the basal level of insulin is highly correlated with the beta glycan, with, with the, this uh, IgG glycom. So, yes, these two things correlate. Uh, I agree that uh, consumption of too much carbohydrates is probably one of the big problems we have in our diet, but we still haven't done sufficient research to claim. But as I mentioned, just at the moment, we have 1,000 people on four different diets, so we'll be much smarter in a couple of weeks. It would be really good to see if there is a connection between vegetable oils, what we should call industrial seed oils, and glycons. Yes, extremely. I suspect yeah. traditional oils are good for you, which we were told were bad. Whereas modern veg oil is actually um, exceptionally toxic to our health. So the problem is that usually these things are confounded with the uh, physical activity, other environment, uh, social um, conditions. So it's not easy to do a cross-section analysis it would have to be kind of intervention study. People starting to change diet, and then we look for an effect. It's not easy, but we are really trying hard to find any cohort of people who did this type of intervention and to also add the glycan information to that study. Okay, and are you aware of any connection with ketones? Because I, am, I'm, I'm, I don't say we should always be in a ketogenic diet. In fact, I would say not, unless it's an intervention to drastically lose weight. But I do strongly uh, believe that having the presence of a reasonable level of ketones relatively frequently in your life is very conducive to health and longevity. So if you know, are you aware of any connections with ketone fueling so and this, glycons? This is the same thing, actually, because when you have low glucose, then the, the body converts to the ketone metabolism and then produces these small ketones, which then are being used by the muscles and the brain and so on. So I, I think it's, it's... I'm not sure that the ketones themselves do something, I think it's just the, the different type of metabolisms, just burning carbohydrates, which goes directly first through glycolysis and then into the Krebs cycles, or just using the ketogenic food, which 
does not do glycolysis and then it just goes into the Krebs cycles and actually glucose is being made by gluconeogenesis. It's a different metabolic um, pathways in our organism, which then again is different from people to people. Not everybody is the same. And we did, we have a, a collaboration with a company selling a drug which limits glycosylation, a derivative of this 2DG. And for example, they know that this would not combine well with the ketogenic diet. So, you know, people are different and we have to be careful in giving uh, in a kind of uh, general statements because for some people this might not be good. And we still have to learn much more to see, to be able to predict uh, which kind of a diet would fit a given person. Okay, and I, I see we're running out of time, so I better speed up once again. I, you mentioned estrogen in menopausal women, and I, okay, another quote belief of mine. I have, luckily have testosterone that is literally um, labeled high by the labs. I've been presuming that's a great thing, even though I'm 44, and it's not stratified by age. And uh, I must admit, my functional age, I would say, is exceptional. And so do you see any kind of connection with testosterone? So we published a paper, I think, three years ago in a, in a study, uh, in a collaboration with uh, Harvard and additional U.S. Uh, lab, where people were um, um, chemically deprived of both uh, testosterone in men and uh, estrogen in women, and we do see effects. So the, the sex hormones have very strong influence on, uh, on, on glycans, although it's not clear whether it's directly some of them, because, you know, they do get converted. So it, it's, still, it's still complicated, but we, we see an effect. We published one paper on that topic. We are about to submit second one, though that one is only with the uh, estrogen and females, and it's uh, definitely something worth exploring further. Okay, let me try and throw in a couple last two questions, and then I'll ask you how people can actually buy the product and where it's available, etc. Uh, because COVID-19 is a hot topic, and because there is um, a significant amount of uh, misleading and misinformation out there, and I would contend uh a lot of mainstream media is um, propagating it. So it's not just social media. Um, you said you're doing something with uh, bergamot. Uh, and what is it you're doing there? So it's not only bergamot. So what, what we are trying, I think the key question we have in COVID now is uh, can we identify people who are at high risk? Because obviously the the large proportion of people, maybe even um, 99.9%, will not have any major problems with this virus. But some of them will die. And we have seen this in Bergamop, we have seen this in New York, we've seen this in part of Spain and France, even in, in, in London recently, that people are dying of this virus. But it's only a subpopulation of people. And what we are trying to do is we are trying to identify a molecular biomarker which will tell you, are you at high risk or not? Because if we would have a tool like that, 
that then only people at high risk would have to be protected, would have to be isolated, while the rest of the population could treat the COVID as a common cold. So um, I am not claiming that we have it. We just got the first cohort of patients. We plan to analyze over 3,000 COVID patients in total until the end of the summer. And not only from Bergamo, but from Barcelona, from Tehran, from several other uh, cities. And maybe we'll find a biomarker, but we don't know yet. Well, I wish you luck with that. Obviously, you're aware that with basic biomarkers like uh, CRP, etc., you can do you can you can quite clearly have some degree of prediction who's vulnerable with basic blood biomarkers today. Yes, this is uh, when somebody comes to hospital, and this is determining the level of inflammation at the moment. What we are trying to find a person in a steady state before infection and say, you ha- don't have to worry or you have to be very cautious not to get infected. This would be an idea. But- I, I appreciate that. I would say at the moment the best you may have is, for example, insulin resistance. The level of that would be uh, good. And I don't think it's accurately measured in the, in the population. That's, this is one thing which really correlates. But the problem with all those correlations, they're not high enough to, um, to be able to tell people you are safe. For example, even the extreme obesity, BMI over 40, bears only maybe two and a half times higher risk. Uncontrolled diabetes is also maybe two or three times higher risk. So it's, it's, it's still not sensitive enough to identify one in a hundred or one in a thousand, which are at high risk. So um, as I said, again, I'm, I'm not claiming glycans will do it. I'm hoping they will, but we will know more in a couple of weeks. Well, I'm going to be tracking that. I hope you would ping me the, the outcome of that because I'm extremely interested in that, um, COVID risk biomarker. So I'm posting everything on Twitter and LinkedIn. So... Okay, that's great. I've got one more question before I actually ask about the product uh, purchasing. You mentioned the future uh, prediction of future disease. And in particular, you mentioned heart attack or stroke. And since heart disease is the number one killer, and half the people that have a heart attack um, end up dead, it's it's very important to be able to predict heart disease and and strokes, and so um, can you say anything on that prediction, the prediction quality, why you think it's predictive, uh, and any lifestyle modification factors you may be aware of. So now we are on a shaky ground because making any kind of uh, health claims would require uh, authorization from the regulator. What I can say that we published a large study earlier this year in diabetes care, I can send you a link, where we do show that a single glycan in women is more predictive than the entire this AHA score for the heart attack and stroke. It's not zero one. It cannot tell you, you know, you will have a heart attack in next two weeks, but it is more predictive than, than anything else we have. And we are currently trying, and this was a large study. This was 27,000 people collected 30 years ago. 500 of them got heart attack after they were sampled. We currently have in my lab 
4,000 people from two studies in US, where we also have over 1,000 people with incident heart attack and stroke. So we are doing more research, but uh, it does seem that this is quite predict predictive. Cannot make any health claims at the moment, but I hope we'll be able to do it in the future. And do you see uh, any connection with lipoproteins, uh, cholesterol levels and glycans? So we did one study where we were looking at uh, lipoprotein function. And we saw that uh, the changes in cellulation of apolipoprotein is actually affecting its function. So by changing the glycosylation of lipoproteins, you are changing the function of those. And actually, they either gain or lose ability to... Uh, it was, we looked at HDL, so it was either gaining or losing ability to pick up cholesterol from the membrane. So I think glycosylation is also very important there. It was predictive of atherosclerosis. We are still doing research in this direction, but definitely there's also something about uh, glycosylation and the lipoprotein function. But that was only HDL, right? We looked at HDL. So, uh, Did you also look at LDL? Or? Uh, and that paper, we just looked at HDL. And so what you're probably saying is the uh, sugar and high insulin damages the lipoproteins. Uh, it's more complicated because we're looking at glycosylation, which is enzymatic process. So and what kind of process is it and what causes it? So glycosylation is a process of making glycans. It's, it's affected by, by sugar level, for example, but it's also highly affected by genetics the genes, the epigenetics, and so on. So it, it's a more complicated than just having the high sugar level. It's, there are multiple components there. For example, some people would just be genetically putting less sialic acid on uh, HDL, and then their HDL would, uh, not a, the HDL would be less functional, so the cholesterol trafficking would be different. So it, it is complicated. It's not, it's not that we can easily just measure and see what is actually going on. Okay, we definitely can um, cover it as a last quick-fire question then. So in terms of the the product itself, I thought it was only aware in the UK market, and you know I, I've obtained one but haven't picked it up yet. And as we were talking, I looked at the website, it says global shipping. So this is global. Yes, it's available, available globally. Initially, we didn't have a technology of uh, analyzing glycanage from the blood stains. This is why we started just locally in London. It was just actually London, not, not UK, because then we had to work with the frozen plasma samples, which were a logistical nightmare. Since uh, maybe six months ago, we switched to the dried blood stains, so you can go to the glycanage.com, buy a set from anywhere in the world, we ship the set, you collect the samples, return it by mail, and we analyze. So it's it's a global product now. And you, you can get the same level of quality from a dry blood spot. Yes, we invested over two years of research to find the way how to get IgG out from the dried blood spot because glycans are chemical structures. They are quite stable. The problem was getting IgG out because... When you have a dried blood stop, but may, many proteins denature and they cause troubles. But we invested a lot of work 
And yes, we can do it now from a dried bug stain. Okay, so in terms of a, a discount code, uh, you said you'd provide one to listeners. So uh, a keyword, maybe it's a little complicated, but I think I would like to go for true, T-R-U-E, bio-age. So true with the bio-age, all one word. Do you think you could set that up? We can set it up. We can get, get a 15% discount for the next two months. That sounds perfect. And... A final, final question. In terms of customer data, what kind of protections do you have in place? Because when it comes to health information, it seems that everybody wants to um, to know how it's stored, how it's with compliant procedures, etc. Personally, I'm not concerned, but it seems many people are. I think this is an extremely important question because uh, personal data should remain personal. And I don't think people should... Uh, profit out of the other people information and since i'm a primarily researcher we always follow the strictest the strictest ethical uh, guidelines and uh, i'm not an expert in it so i don't know how it is being done but we are really trying hard to protect the data that nobody can actually steal it from us and i don't know try to do something are you selling it third parties no no we never did it we never will do it it's not it's not our business model to sell the data what we are trying to do we are trying to help people uh, by giving them uh, a tool to quantify what is going on and we also have an option of uh, not giving us any data you can just buy a test and not give us any data but then you cannot come to us and ask, you know, what should I do? So actually, the only reason why we do collect some data is that when people come to us with a question, why is my glycan age bad? We can look into data and say, okay, maybe this could be the reason. Okay, are you looking for outside investment? Uh, the glycan age needs to grow. Because as you said at the beginning, you never heard about it. And most of the people didn't hear about it. So yes, we are currently looking for people who would help us grow. Because we do have a product. We have all science behind it. We are doing science also independently. But we need uh, we need help in growing. So we are looking for help. I can help you with a little bit of matchmaking there. So I know you told me you've got a, a hard cough. And I see I've overrun slightly. So I super appreciate you taking the time out. I'm delighted with what we've covered. I didn't have high expectancies all along because, hey, I get many messages. I have been becoming more and more aware of glycan age in a positive sense. This is only uh, further underlined that for me. This is something I'm, I'm taking seriously. I very much look forward to the results of my own test. I also know someone quite close who also um, ordered the test. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, what her results are. And if anybody would uh, like to get in touch with yourself, what channel do you recommend? Sending me, sending me an email may work unless there are too many emails on that given day, especially in the COVID pandemics, I am very hard to reach. But emails is probably the best way or just contacting the company 
and then they have a way to getting to me. Okay, so probably the best option here is just to go to glycanage.com and and uh, find the contact means there, which I think is intercom. Yeah, I agree. That would be the best approach for the moment because you know in this pandemics we are all too busy. At least people involved in trying to find a solution for the pandemics. Okay, Gordon, I very much appreciate your time. So thank you for your efforts. It was nice chatting with you. And I hope you learned a little bit more about glycans. I learned a, a lot. And I hope I think it's just the beginning. And I think we're going to be uh, chatting for some years to come. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.